On April 14th of 2021, President Biden announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. In the months that followed, U.S. withdrawal of troops was accompanied by a rapid recapture of Afghanistan by Taliban forces, who easily defeated or overran the various Afghan army that had been trained and supported by the U.S. and its allies for the past 20 years. During this same time period, media coverage in the United States has been almost completely dominated by critiques and laments on President Biden's decision. While it is expected that Biden's political opponents will use any opportunity to criticize him, a chorus of criticism has extended along political lines. This is despite the fact that opinion polls throughout the past years have shown that the majority of Americans are overwhelmingly in support of withdrawal. It seems, as many commentators have noted, that U.S. presidents will receive far more mainstream media scrutiny for ending wars than for starting them. A few voices have attempted to point this out as well as mentioning the staggering amount of spending estimated to be about $2.3 trillion. That is, of course, only one cost of the war. There are many other costs, mainly on the Afghan people themselves. Another media angle has been the anguish over the rights of Afghan women and the ruthlessness of the Taliban. This perception of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan is widespread in American media and prevalent among participants in the Afghan war and other international actors. As the U.S. was seemingly stuck in a nonsensical war, empowerment of Afghan women emerged as the ultimate moral justification for the war that, if nothing else, would redeem the United States' presence there. However, as is often the case, Media coverage in the United States and other parts of the Western world confuses more than it clarifies the issues at stake. Welcome to Security in Context, a podcast aimed at promoting new thinking on security from a global perspective. I'm your host, Anita Fuentes, and today we are diving into an issue that has been all over the news in the last month the implications of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which we will be investigating from different angles with the help of our guests, Rafia Zakaria, author of the brilliant book Against White Feminism, which came out only a few weeks ago, and Michael Clare, professor of peace and world security studies and defense correspondent at The Nation. And we will end the episode with a brief media roundup with Rafael Lewis. Rafia, welcome to Security in Context, and thank you so much for making time for us. Uh, we really appreciate that you came here today. <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, absolutely. So let's start by introducing you to our audience. Rafia is originally from Pakistan, but she's lived in the U.S. for many years now. She's a very multifaceted and talented woman. She's not only a lawyer and a political philosopher, but also an amazing writer. In fact, she's the author of three books. The Upstairs Wife, Veil, and Against White Feminism, and she's a columnist at The Baffler, CNN, and Dawn. That's a that's a great introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so how about we begin? Um, first of all, I'd like to start out talking about Against White Feminism, which I finished a few weeks ago, and I loved it. Uh, in fact, everyone should read the book. And I wanted to ask you why the title and what do you mean when you say white feminism? Yeah, um, you know, to be honest, uh, it's been a journey to write this book. Um, when I first came up uh, with the proposal or the idea, uh, my agent at the time was com so completely against it. He was just wasn't having it, uh, thought it was... He just, I mean, he actually kind of had a very visceral reaction to it, even to the title. Um, and it was a long journey from there to, uh, you know, my current agent, who's a great champion of the book. But, um, you know, I tell this story just to point out how 
even intellectually, isolating white as a title is considered offensive by a lot of white people. And it's true that when I say white feminism, it's, you know, this is the first line and the first page of the book is that when I'm saying white feminism, I don't mean a white woman who is a feminist. So you could be a white woman and a feminist and not be a white feminist. I'm speaking very particularly about women who are not willing to acknowledge the role that white racial privilege has played in the feminist movement and continues to play uh, in the feminist movement. And, and, and it's, a, it's a very corrosive and insidious kind of thing that I was trying to point out, that I am trying to point out. Um, and I'm ho- you know my hope is that in isolating that concept of white feminism, um, there's still the potential to create an egalitarian feminism that is not dominated by uh, white culture, white ideas, white privilege, um, you know, as it has been. I mean, the, you know, the, the movement that we have at the moment is not an egalitarian movement because it's been, um, you know, it's been essentially constructed around white women and reflects the priorities and the policies of of you know, white women, uh, largely middle-class white women. Um, So that's like the central project of the book Um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the fact that I wanted to create a vocabulary that feminists would then have to kind of note this phenomenon. And obviously it's not possible for me to, you know, present all the different iterations of it in, you know, my little book. But the goal was to to equip feminists who read the book uh, with a vocabulary that they can then use to sort of deconstruct uh, the power structures that uh, continue to center and exist in deference to whiteness. I noticed that because it was very helpful to me and it read very easily. It read very, it read like a story. And at the same time, it was kind of like a glossary in a way where it like structured uh, a lot of ideas that I had and that I had thought about, but I I didn't find the right words for them. So I totally, <laughs> I think, you know, you succeeded in, in doing this. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, you know, that's the best compliment <laughs> that I could get about the book. So I appreciate it very much. So in the book, you talk about, uh, well, you talk about many things. And I wish we could just reproduce the entire book in this interview. But since we can't, I would like to highlight your discussion of the concept of empowerment. You explain in the book the history of this term within the feminist movement, how, why, and by whom it was coined, and how it got co-opted by white feminism. So my question is, what did empowerment mean originally, and how did this meaning evolve into what the mainstream understands as empowerment today? Um, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good question. It's a timely question in the sense that, you know, the, uh, UN, uh, SG meetings are going on right now. And that, you know, uh, maybe what, 30, 40 years ago were the sort of venue from which this term arose. So, um, empowerment essentially was a term used by over the, you know, devised by a group of Indian feminists led by Gita Sen. Uh, you know, it's uh, the group was called the Dawn Collective. And they came up with the term em- empowerment to essentially represent uh, the political struggle against all the structures and instruments of patriarchy, um, wherever they might be. Right. So um, so this was like the 70s, I think, when they came up with this term. Um, But, you know, as I 
present in the book, uh, if you if you trace the history of the term, as soon as it was a uh, sort of it appeared in the language of um, you know the United Nations UNWA um, UN Women. Um, it started to lose its emphasis on political and become, you know, more or less a technocratic term of art that, you know, could be deployed by anyone for any reason, right? So, you know, when when it was constructed, the consensus was that feminism at its core, at its root, was a political struggle, right? So it was... Um, you know, it inherently involved contestation. It inherently involved checks on state power. It inherently involved not being co-opted in patriarchal institutions. But you know, the the once enough, you know, once it started to sort of gain some traction, it was like you mentioned in your question, essentially co-opted by white women who did not really see, you know, who envisioned empowerment uh, not as a radical political struggle, but rather as a neoliberal um, sort of, uh, you know, offshoot that uh, centered economic empowerment. So you have uh, then, you know, um, the term being used for all sorts of programs that involve the economic uplift of women. So everything from, you know, in the book, I give the example of Bill Gates and his chickens, right? So you have Bill Gates saying, I'm going going to, um, you know, eradicate poverty and empower women with this one big idea that I have. And his one big idea was to provide chickens to hundreds of millions of women. And the idea was that, his idea was that you would just give chickens to to women and then the chickens would lay eggs. I mean, and then the eggs would be more chickens. And before you knew it, these women would have a business going around the chickens. And so, you know, they would become like, I guess, chicken producers. Um, and of course, the you know, the, the I mean, you know, I, we laugh about it now, but it's, like hundreds of millions of dollars were allocated for this program. And of course, it was a failure uh, because, uh, you know, like many other economic programs that, you know, come up with these one big solution ideas for women's empowerment, it, um, you know, provided a short-term boost perhaps in the income um, or economic power that the women who got the chickens had. But, you know, within months time or a year's time, there was no discernible benefit to them. Um, and the reason why I point out that example is, and, and you can see it in lots of other iterations, like Afghan women, for instance, are um, their current position as the U.S. has withdrawn and the Taliban have taken over is another example of this. Because I, I was going to ask you, like, how does the co-optation of female empowerment uh, tie into the United States actions in Afghanistan? Because you mentioned in your book, Promote, uh, and I actually wanted to ask you about that precisely. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Promote was a USAID program. It, it involved uh, more than $400 million and is, I think, to date the largest program of anything that, uh, you know, USAID has ever attempted. And the idea behind Promote, which was championed by one and all, Hillary Clinton, uh, Madeleine Albright, like, you know, all the sort of Samantha Power, all the big, I would say the big white feminists or big white women of um, of our current era, um, because it was going to provide job training to Afghan women. So the idea was that through this program, 70,000 Afghan women would benefit uh, by getting internships, on-the-job training, seminars, workshops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And of course, um, it was put into operation, and then within a 
like a couple of years, the inspector general, which is, you know, another arm of the U.S. government itself, so it's not even something outside, essentially found that only... Well, first of all, let me even point out, like, before I I talk about its failure, the fact, uh, the idea of having a program like Promote, right, which is almost exactly envisioning empowerment as something that a suburban high school student in New Jersey or college student in New Jersey comes out and says, okay, what do I need? And you need, oh, I need an internship or I need training in this particular software or whatever. Um, So it imported ideas that were very much uh, born within that milieu and discussed among largely white women in the United States and wanted to sort of use that as a trickle-down model on Afghan women. Now, uh, of course, unlike the United States, Afghanistan is mainly a rural country. It's also so, you know, I mean, women have to travel for a day and a half often before they can even get basic health care. So the idea that these women could somehow magically avail of these internships or you know, this money that was allocated for job training reflects a complete inability to even understand, forget, forget about, you know, sort of the intellectual uh, framework. It's even an inability to understand the basic uh, cultural and geographical um, challenges that Afghan women faced and imagine them all to be, you know, like these up and coming urban college students in Kabul, which is a very, very big uh, misconception. And so, of course, the program was there. Uh, and and then, you know, when the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction looked at the program, they found that they could only document three. That's literally one, two, three, three women that had benefited from it. And um, in addition to that, USAID told the Special Inspector General that they could not account for the rest of the money. So nobody really knows where the $400 million went. Uh, they certainly didn't empower Afghan women. And, uh, but, you know, this, the structure of this program is, is it's, it's really a great case study in how bad things can get. So, you know, even when you're thinking about spending $400 million, the only people you talk to are people, I mean, the only Afghan women you talk to are people who, you know, function as middle women. So they're there to kind of, they're part of the aid economy that you have created. And so naturally, they they have only good things to say because they obviously have a direct economic benefit. Um from the program. And beyond that, like, you know, no Afghan women seem to have been consulted because it's it's a very basic answer that they would probably give is that, look, I mean, you know, this is not, I mean, this is structured in a way that it completely ignores our priorities. But I, I but this is, I mean, you know, uh, we can look at these, these programs that are like documented failures, but the, but the, terrifying thing is that literally even at this moment of our talking, there are hundreds of millions of dollars being allocated in same or similar ways. Um, You know, I looked at a recent study by, uh, this is like after I finished the book, um, by the Center for Global Development, where they looked at 15 large NGOs, the board's and governance mechanisms of 15 large NGOs. And they found that only 2% of the people on the boards of these, these are like, you know, Oxfam, the the big humanitarian NGOs, they found only 2% of them even had board members who belonged to countries that were aid recipients, right? So, I mean, even in terms of like basic representation, you don't have it on these boards, which means that this sort of like self-congratulatory uh, translation of a movement into this technocratic scheme where, you know, we have X number of workshops and we have, you know, X number of um 
chickens or uh, you know units dispersed um, is created as the metric, and then you know um, the program is is essentially celebrated as a success. And and it's 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 also um, important to know that you know say say for instance even if this program had been a success, right? Let's give it to USAID. Uh, Somehow there was a miracle that 70,000 women were trained. They were somehow installed in jobs and, um, you know, become, became part of the government machinery, uh, the legal system, et cetera. The fact is that, that without having a simultaneous struggle for political rights, a ground up struggle for political rights, all of those gains would and have been wiped out by the Taliban because women have not organized collectively as a political bloc. And when you don't, when women don't are unable to do that, you can provide them with all the economic rights in the world, uh, but they're going to be essentially wiped out in an instant, right? The second a, a, a different government or a different regime or whatever uh, gets into power because you haven't empowered the women uh, politically. Uh, and that empowerment has to come from the ground up. And it would probably have, you know, to have been presented in uh, a culturally, religiously, racially, relevant context, uh, none of which was done in the Afghan case or even in the chickens case. Yes, I totally agree. I think it's a huge tactic of those in power to make, you know, everyone's problems individual, to make us believe that our problems are individual rather than social or political. And then, you know, they, they strip us from our power when we are actually empowered is when we realize that our problems are shared. Um, So I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's happening in Texas is an example of that as well, right? Um, You know, you don't, like we, even in the United States, uh, have neglected collective feminist organizing around issues that are important to women. And that means that when you have these ultra-right, uh, people such as the legislator, legislators in Texas who take over power, it could happen in any state, to be honest, uh, they seek to wipe out um, all the rights that women have gained. And uh, we do not have, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to discount the organizing that is being done uh, around uh, reproductive rights in Texas, but the, but the, the point I'm making is that we are sort of having to resuscitate those collective, um, you know, those ways of collective organizing and political contestation that have kind of become dormant or uh, have, you know, we've, we've allowed them to atrophy. And that's true for women all around the world is that unless we re, re, rekindle or, you know, resuscitate these ideas of women's collective political organizing, we're going to see a similar sort of this a similar attack on women's rights all around the world. I mean, I can guarantee it. This month marks 20 years since 9-11. And in the fourth chapter of Against White Feminism, you talk about the United States actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you refer to the war on terror as the first feminist war. What do you mean by that? So yes, uh, I call it the first feminist war because, um, you know, as I trace the history of what happened in Afghanistan, you know, it's, I think, uh, from a feminist perspective, um, it's, it's good to start the story really from the 1990s. So in the very late 1990s, Feminist Majority, which is a feminist organization in the United States, was uh, carrying out a program, uh, an advocacy program on behalf of Afghan women that they were calling, I believe, and gender apartheid in um, Afghanistan. 
right? So this program was going on, um, you know, for a while, there really wasn't much buy-in. Yeah, not, not a lot of people knew about it. But then somehow, uh, Mavis Leno, the wife of the talk show host, Jay Leno, a late night host, Jay Leno, a big celebrity in LA, uh, is told about this program. And she kind of takes this on as her issue and has this big celebrity fundraiser, um, you know, where she invites Meryl Streep and Susan Sarandon and all these big mega celebrities uh, in Hollywood around this issue. And then, you know, their program kind of starts to gain traction. Now, this was happening. And then suddenly in September 2001, 9-11 happens, right? Um, And uh, none of the, not a single one, obviously, of the hijackers has anything really to do with Afghanistan or, or women, let alone women in Afghanistan. But in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration was on the hunt to sort of, they had to essentially get revenge, right? Something enormous and awful had been done to the United States. And this big superpower, this really bloated defense budget was now on the rampage to, to punish. Um, and so they couldn't obviously bomb Afghanistan, uh, bomb Saudi Arabia, where all the hijackers were from, because Saudi Arabia is U.S. ally, and a U.S. needed oil, and didn't want to disrupt the oil market in terms of you know threatening the Saudi supply. And so essentially, they came onto Afghanistan. Uh, and they said, okay, well, Al-Qaeda has taken refuge in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda was behind the 9-11 bombings and we're going to bomb Afghanistan. But of course, you know, owning to a purely strategic revenge program uh, is not the way a superpower does things, especially a neo-colonial entity like the United States, a hegemonic power. And so they wanted a cover story to to essentially uh, be able to state this war in moral terms, in moral terms um, such that the American public would support the effort. And uh, and that's when they came up and hit on the program that feminist majority was already uh, carrying out. So the slogan of the war became that we're going to have this war and it's going to liberate Afghan women. Right. So to the extent that when uh, Secretary, then Secretary of uh, State Colin Powell made the announcement that the U.S. was going to you know, invade Afghanistan, uh, representatives from the, the leaders of the feminist majority were actually present when that announcement was made. Um, and they were meeting with, you know, uh, officials at the State Department, at the White House, uh, to sort of advise them. So this is a huge turn in white Western feminism, because until now, by and large, even U.S. feminists, despite, you know, the the fact that, you know, they, they did have white privilege, but they had been critical of U.S., they had been tried at least to serve as a check on U.S. power. Uh, They protested the war in Vietnam, for instance, right? And now all of a sudden they became allied with the U.S. state, the U.S. state's interests. So you immediately had women like Hillary Clinton and uh, Madeleine Albright championing this war. Um, and saying that this was a war to liberate Afghan women. We all remember Laura Bush's famous speech about it. And so effective was that narrative that, I mean, it. I, I don't want to say duped, but it essentially duped white feminists within, white and Western feminists within the United States to, for instance, completely ignore uh, indigenous Afghan women's voices that were just begging, begging for peace, right, um, before the invasion and doing everything that they could to try and 
prevented. Not only were those voices, you know, ignored, but the the very core of the, you know, of the absurdity of this war, which on one hand was going to was going to and did bomb hundreds of thousands of Afghans, kills thousands and thousands of Afghan civilians, was still imagined as a good war, right? It was imagined as this war where um, Americans were going in and they were going to save Afghan women along the very Orientalist sort of tropes of white men going to save brown women from brown men. Afghan culture was presented as endemically backward, uh, lacking any of its own uh, sort of indigenous ideas of women's empowerment, which is actually not true at all. Um, but but that was the picture that was sold. And, you know, um, Afghan women themselves were sandwiched between these com- two completely horrific possibilities. Uh, one of, you know, this global, I mean, as, and I, and I, I really want to emphasize this because I don't think a lot of people from, you know, my discussions with them, I don't think a lot of people understand just how helpless you feel if you are a small country, landlocked country like Afghanistan, and this huge superpower is breathing down your neck, and there's next to nothing that you can do to prevent the bombing of your country. So you have that on one hand, and then you have the completely draconian and sort of um, you know, rev- Islamic revivalist type ethos of the Taliban, who again, so you, on one hand, you have Americans reducing you to, you know, just like this uh, moral gloss that they can put on their war. And on the other hand, you have the Taliban who are completely misinterpreting Islamic law in very, very, um, in ways that are actually very, very, postmodern um and uh but that that also essentially are geared towards disempowering you um but that's the situation that uh that the US created uh for afghan women and now of course we have the consequences of 20 years of that kind of rhetoric yes and going back to the idea that you expressed before about you know providing your readers, the people who read Against White Feminism, with a vocabulary. I have to say one concept that really stuck out to me was the concept of uh, secure feminism, which I wasn't familiar with. Uh, but I think it's it's key to this discussion of feminism and Afghan women. Um, and the term basically holds that fighting against terrorism is in itself a kind of feminism, which is in my opinion, completely against, you know, the mere idea of feminism, because it violence, I think it's a very stereotypically uh, masculine idea uh, that was later incorporated into feminism, as you as you say in your book, you know, during the war on terror. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, what would you say are the implications of the media coverage of Afghan women after the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan? Because I've been seeing, I've been bombarded by news about Afghan women since the U.S. withdrawal. And I I wanted to ask you what you thought about that. You know, if everything that Afghan women have gone through is not enough, I mean, secure feminism is, you know, the operative concept. And Lila, um, you know, as I mentioned, Lila Bulohod, who wrote uh, Do Muslim Women Need Saving, is um, is the, you know, that concept comes from her. Um, but I wanted to use it because it's, you know, when I say secure feminism, I'm not just, um, I don't just mean, you know, say, the USAID worker that was going out there to save Afghan women. I mean also um, conceptions of 
fighting terror within the United States, right? So um, I was I was really disturbed recently when I saw a CIA ad that was geared towards Latina women and showed a Latina woman who uh, you can look it up; it's available on YouTube. Um, you know, who said I'm an intersectional feminist? I'm this, I'm that, and of course, she's working for the CIA. And you know, it's very, very clever because what they're doing is taking uh, women who are marginalized, who are very often even left out of the discourse on race, right? Because that's also an attendant issue is that race involves, you know, brown, Asian, Latina, and Black women. And there's very much an effort on the part of white feminists to the extent that they even allow for a discussion on race to just deal with Black feminists, Black indigenous feminists, when, um, you know, the discussion needs to be much wider. But in this case, um, what terrifies me is that is two things. One is that this idea of secure feminism, where the good, uh, so if I'm a brown Muslim woman, the way I can be a good feminist is essentially to be a some kind of a native informant on my community, where if I'm not handing up uh, you know, Muslim men for the consump- consumption of the terror industrial complex, which in the U.S. is worth millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars are invested, for instance, in the Department of Homeland Security. So, and and now they're taking Latina women, right, who are marginalized in so many ways, um, and saying like, oh, you want to be be part of the club, and you know, you want to be part. Part of like the the brave American woman who's fighting terror around the world. Here you can join the CIA, and this is how you can be a part of it. So essentially, it's a way to co-opt women into this vast killing machine uh, that the U.S. has created. I mean, even now we've gone out of Afghanistan, but there are what like eighty countries that in which America is still carrying out counterterrorism operations, arresting people, throwing people in jail. Um, you know, all of that. So the war on terror has not ended, and you know, the idea of the secure of feminists is inherently linked to the war on terror because it tries to, um, you know, not just, uh, you know, women who actually say even CIA women, but for, uh, for instance, journalists, white women journalists. So that's the second point, right? His first point is secure of feminism alive and well, still the operative concept. The second issue is, is that, um, you know, we're still uh, carrying out this war on terror. Um, you know, the UN General Assembly is about, is meeting right now. And the UN has hundreds of millions of dollars invented, invested in countering violent extremism programs, which again, you know, structurally implicate that you as a brown woman uh, can be taken, you know, the way you can sort of legitimize yourself as a political actor is to, uh, you know, adopt this position as fighting violence. Now, it sounds innocuous enough, right? I mean, of course, feminists are against terrorism. Uh, why should they not be? But, you know, terrorism, I mean, it's important to define that the U.S. in many of these contexts has defines terrorists um, as anybody, any male over the age of 16 who the U.S. calls a terrorist. Like, it's literally that redundant circle of, of, of who we consider terrorists and who we are droning um, and killing remotely. So this aftermath that you're describing of, you know, the U.S. left Afghanistan illustrates in bold flying colors um, the success of that narrative. Right, because what is the default narrative that Clarissa Ward on CNN is presenting? Right, she's this white blonde woman that goes to Kabul, and you know the Taliban are there, and she very theatrically is at this burqa shop, and she's putting on this stuff, and and so it's again this idea of like you know look at how brave this 
blonde, white, blue-eyed woman is. I don't know if she's actually blue-eyed, very well might be. Do know she's blonde. Uh, you know, these aesthetic contrasts have a very strong racial dimension um, that is a dog whistle. Um, you know, to this idea that this is the sort of woman that's fighting against these obscurantist forces of the Taliban. Um, you know, while it's imagined that Afghan women, you know, like every now and then, though 10 or 20 that are protesting in the streets get some play, but not the women who are, say, actually like the woman doctor who's still continuing to go to her job despite the Taliban. And she's like, there, there's no discussion of her. Um, there's so, the, you know, the entire narrative is built around this neo-imperial idea that the only way that Afghan women could really um, empower themselves is to leave. And there's no sort of taking stock of how utterly and completely the United States and NATO and the United Nations has delegitimized any kind of talk of empowerment within Afghanistan by associating it with this occupying bombing force. If the people who are who are, you know, championing empowerment are the same people that are bombing the villages, the level of trust is absolutely completely eliminated. And you're going to have a lot more women who, you know, would rather support the Taliban over the United States uh, because the United States continues to bomb them. Um, you know, the last, this latest drone strike that killed 10 Afghan civilians, I mean, I think it was like a couple of days ago, the U.S. general in charge said, yeah, that was a mistake. Uh, sorry. Like, we thought it was ISIS, but really, it was just 10 innocent people, right? So so that's the attitude um, toward the whole thing. Um, you know, now what self-respecting Afghan woman, prov you know, how do you contend with that? How do you contend with that narrative? Um, so that is one of the goals of Against White Feminism, is to try to show people how everything from journalism to these kind of CVE programs to aid work is constructed around this image of the white woman as being the ultimate savior. I would like to, to finish on a more positive note uh, so here's my last question for you. How can feminists and how can, I guess, people in Western countries actually be allies to Afghan women? You know, I w uh, it's, going, it, it's going to be difficult. What the book tries to do is provide anyone who comes to it with an analytical framework that they can apply to what they see around them what kind of content they are asked to create, uh, what kind of content gets disseminated widely. Essentially, I've tried to provide a frame that analyzes the world from uh, a perspective of racial egalitarianism, right? So, you know, number one step one would be to recognize Afghanistan as a racialized war. Uh, which involves, you know, white people bombing a, a brown country. Um, and, you know, um, those sorts of racial dynamics, whether they are within feminists or whether they are on a larger sphere uh, of looking at U.S. strategic interests and how they're exercised around the world, that framework is essentially meant to expose that. And of course, like a book like mine cannot be ever be, you know, a comprehensive account. So the idea is, is that people who read this book and take its arguments seriously can then dissect the racial dynamics that they see, even just as a news consumer, even as just a content consumer, it hopes to provide you the discernment uh, where you don't see, for instance, you know, a CNN report on Afghan women 
as the innocuous thing that it present, you know, tries to present itself to be. Um, you can see how it's racially coded. You can see how these vast disparities of power are never discussed. Um, you know, the book, for instance, talks about Gertrude Bell, right, who's this British colonial era woman who goes out to the Middle East. And then she's immediately, you know, in the Middle East, uh, in this pre-suffrage era that she exists in, she is like overjoyed because suddenly, as she puts it, she's a person in this world. Because at that time, uh, you know, uh, she didn't have the vote uh, in, uh, you know, in the UK. But, you know, when she goes abroad, she uh, suddenly her white privilege makes her more valuable than a brown, brown man, right? So it's an immense power trip. And that power trip exists even today. And people are not willing. Uh, so, so essentially what I'm asking white women to do is begin to, instead of policing brown and black women, begin to police the discussions even within white women that, you know, don't touch this issue uh, of racial power differences, you know, whether it's in your faculty meeting or, you know, your workplace or um, what you share on social media, uh, all of that is a political act if you are a feminist. And that's what I try to do. I try to get women to see the politics that are imbued within all these like micro decisions that we make, you know, what we click like on, um, what we consume without question. Well, I think you succeeded at least, um, as a reader, you know, I can tell you that it, it did help me become a more critical consumer and a more critical producer. I would say of, of any content that I produce or just a more critical person overall. So I hope that was the outcome for everyone who read it. I'm sure it was. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Rafia. I hope this is only the first of many conversations. And thank you so much again for your time and for your wisdom and for everything and for your book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I hope that people who listen to this can come to the book with an open mind. Um, you know, as I've said in other interviews, this is, this is not trying to sort of, you know, the the solution to marginalization is not to marginalize white women. That's not what the book is trying to do. I think uh, white women are crucial to the book's project of, uh, you know, making all of us sensitive to power dynamics that we have been conditioned to ignore. Um, and I do believe in that process, we become better feminists. So thank you so much for having me. Right. So, you know, this war on terror, like, what are we talking about, right? Terror is not, you know, a, it's not a group, right? It's not a people. There is the sense that it's impossible to criticize U.S. policy, including obviously egregious crimes and disasters, you know, for what they are. The perpetrator of this imperial terror were and are in uniform using military hardware and sophisticated technology and drones to outsource terrorism. What lies beneath is a security establishment that has created a racial Muslim threat in order to reproduce and sustain empire. We're speaking today with Michael Clare. Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C., Defense Correspondent at The Nation Magazine, and author of numerous books. His most recent one, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change, was published in 2019. Michael recently authored a piece in The Nation titled Great Power Politics After Afghanistan. The article had a very different take on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan than ones being portrayed in much of the media. 
We caught up with Michael to ask him about some of the main points he was arguing in the article. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? A pleasure to join you today. So, Michael, in your article, you discuss the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and its long-term strategic consequences. There was a sense in most media coverage of the withdrawal that this is both a major defeat for the United States and that this is almost a retrenchment of U.S. militarism, in a way almost a response to critiques of endless wars. However, in your article, you present a slightly different perspective. Could you help us understand how you read the U.S. withdrawal in terms of U.S. foreign policy moving forward? I'm very happy to do so. And, you know, I would begin with an important document released by the Department of Defense in 2018 called the National Defense Strategy. This is the governing document for U.S. military policy. It's cited by every one of uh, the generals and admirals when they testify to Congress about U.S. strategy going forward. And what that uh, document says is that the global war on terror is no longer the defining concern of U.S. strategy looking forward. That from now on, the defining concern of U.S. strategy going forward is what they call great power competition, namely military rivalry between the U.S. and China and Russia, and that everything going forward is going to be focused about preparations for a war between the U.S. and Russia and China or, or comp military competition between the U.S. and Russia and China. And this takes precedence over everything else. And as a result, the global war on terror is downgraded in their estimation. And I think this, this uh, expresses the overwhelming majority view of American military strategists. Uh, that the global war on terror had run its course, uh, it had accomplished uh, whatever it was meant to do long ago, and it was now draining U.S. military capabilities and resources, tying us up in endless wars in strategically unimportant places like Afghanistan, while China and Russia were building up their forces in more important places like Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. This is the consensus view of U.S. strategists. Now, if you start from that perspective, the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, follows as a, a desirable strategic move. Uh, Afghanistan contributed nothing to U.S. security uh, or, or to U.S. strategic goals. It, did, it, it, it was not in a strategic location, and it was costing the U.S. enormous resources and troops and money and everything else. So it made sense to withdraw from Afghanistan and redeploy those resources to more important theaters. And I, I think most military people viewed things that way. So they actually view the withdrawal from Afghanistan as a benefit from the U.S. on this strategic, new strategic chessboard where China and Russia are, are the main U.S. adversaries. And it doesn't represent a defeat in their minds because there was nothing there to have a victory for. There was no, this was not an important strategic battlefield for the United States. There was never a chance for victory. Nobody ever had any notion of victory in Afghanistan. Uh, so uh, it was a defeat, but it was a, a, a defeat without consequences for the most part. You know, obviously the images of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the chaotic withdrawal, is seen as a, a kind of setback for the United States. And the media certainly portrayed it that way, and Republicans in Congress have portrayed it that way. And, you know, this will be talked about for a while 
as, as some kind of setback, but it doesn't have any real military significance. In fact, uh, it, it, from a strategic point of view, um, this may be a benefit for the U.S. and that benefit because uh, Afghanistan will now be a problem for Russia and China. They have to worry about insecurity, instability, chaos on their, uh, in the case of Russia, their southern border, on the case of China, their western border. Both countries have large Muslim populations. They fear influence from radical jihadists coming from Afghanistan. So they have more problems and the U.S. has less. And, And that's why I don't think it's a setback for the United States. And what do you think will be the long-term consequences in Afghanistan itself? Where do you see the country heading? And what will be the response of the main regional actors? This, of course, is hard for anyone to tell at this moment in time. Uh, I find it hard to believe that the Taliban will be able to organize a functioning government that has a long-term stability and and operationality. Uh, I don't see the Taliban running government ministries, providing food, electricity, water uh, to a large population of many millions of people. Uh, I don't I don't see that they have that capability. So either they are going to require some kind of accommodation with uh, with the rest of the world. Uh, in which there's a quid pro quo that uh, that the Taliban modify, moderate their behavior in return for economic and technological aid, or the Taliban itself will disintegrate in some form. And you'll either have civil war between remnants of the Taliban, other extremist jihad groups and warlords, as you had before the U.S. intervention in 2001, uh, which would be an utter catastrophe, uh, or, or China will intervene, perhaps, with Russia, and they'll be stuck with this with this disastrous situation. But I don't see the Taliban on their own uh, managing a country. I, I, don't, I don't see that they have that ca- capacity. And besides, they're riven with internal uh, factionalism and dissent, and there's evidence of that already that their major leaders cannot agree. Uh, so um, we don't know what's going to happen. I think there'll be a lot of chaos and uh, and a lot of humanitarian disasters, uh, but it'll be up to others, uh, not the United States, to have to cope with all this chaos. Are there any final remarks you'd like to share with our listeners? I'd like to say I, I, I worry about the fate of millions of Afghanis uh, who are facing a, a period of a winter coming on with low food stocks, uh, with low energy stocks. Um, Afghanistan has been subjected to climate change, as has much of the world. But that part of the world in particular is suffering from water scarcity, and uh, it's going to need a lot of help to, uh, to, to manage scarce water resources in, in a way to feed its population. Uh, the Taliban has no capacity to do any of this. Uh, so uh, we can expect um, terrible humanitarian disasters to occur. And um, I, I hope the Taliban is wise enough to call for international assistance to address these looming disasters and to to receive that assistance, whether it comes from the West or China or the Persian Gulf states like Qatar or others, uh, wherever it comes from, uh, the, the Taliban are going to have to make some changes in their policies around women, for example, around the media. Uh, So so I hope that they're wise enough to make these kind of arrangements so that they can receive the assistance they will need to take care of the needs of their population. 
Well, thank you again, Michael, for sharing your views with us. It's been a very enlightening conversation, and we hope to see you soon in Security in Context. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. While the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the strategic victories of the Taliban have dominated the mainstream world news cycle, there have been developments in international relations, the state of surveillance technology, climate change, and more that should not go unnoticed. Let's bring context into the world's current situation with the help of my colleague, Rafael Luis. Hi, Rafael. Good to talk to you. Hi, Anita. Good to talk to you, too. How are things in Spain? Cold, actually. It's been raining all day. How are things in Texas? Texas is, uh, is very, very hot, and uh, the political atmosphere is pretty hectic right now, uh, especially with the newly implemented abortion restrictions. So tell us, Rafael, what happened this month? Year after year, humanity seems to pass new terrifying climate thresholds. The UN Intergovernmental Panel, or IPCC, climate report, in their first major review of the science of climate change since 2013, confirms that global surface temperature has risen substantially over the last 10 years, and the rate of sea level rise has tripled since 1971. As human growth and activity continues, the IPCC's document says it is, quote, unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, oceans, and land. However, while most of the world understands that humans are directly affecting the climate, many large media outlets that report on climate disasters fail to explicitly identify human activity as its direct cause. So what I'm taking away from these findings is that climate change is not just about the scientific issues. There's a social and a political side to the problem that's keeping us from taking action, essentially. Yeah, exactly. If the coverage of climate change fails to articulate the direct connection uh, between human activity and the adverse effects of climate change, uh, then people won't take responsibility. And speaking of taking responsibility, COVID, of course, continues to be haunting societies everywhere. Any noteworthy coverage on that front this month? Yes. While the United States Food and Drug Administration has given emergency authorizations for the distribution of additional vaccine doses for people at severe risk, the World Health Organization called for a moratorium on vaccine boosters until every country reaches a 10% vaccination rate. Um, this development highlights a tension between more affluent nations who are able to vaccinate their populations more effectively than others. Which reminds me of an article I read earlier this year titled, uh, how many vaccine doses can nations ethically hoard? The case for sharing supplies prior to reaching herd immunity. The article was published in Foreign Affairs magazine. And uh, the piece argued for an international collective vaccine distribution process, essentially. Do you think countries like Taiwan, for instance, which have kept COVID death rates under control without an abundance of vaccines, should be obligated to adhere to the international vaccine collective? Yeah, right. That's that's a great question. Um, is it fair for countries that have not acquired many vaccines to give their vaccines away due to their relatively low death rate? Um, on the other hand, for example, the U.S. has seen massive COVID death rates due to lack safety protocols. So should, should the U.S. receive vaccines uh, from an international collective when they're able to produce uh, many of them? And in fact, they they kind of run a, a, a monopoly on vaccine distribution um, as well and, and production. Well, it seems that these questions will remain unanswered for now. So what other issues did this month's news cover? Uh, an ongoing news section of ours is security and surveillance, um, which is a core issue for security and context, taken up in particular by our Endemic Infrastructures Working Group. Uh, this month's news items covered the following topics. The UN, in accordance with Amnesty International, have called for a moratorium on surveillance technology after an instrument found that journalists at Amnesty were being surveilled. Uh, additionally, private tech companies are becoming more and more intertwined with governments around the world. Um, L3 Harris Technologies, a multi-billion dollar surveillance company um, that employs over 45,000, is developing a new surveillance system for NATO. Actually, this system will replace the existing airborne warning and control system. And speaking of surveillance and protecting those who expose the wrongdoings of powerful entities, uh, Julian Assange is still under siege from the U.S. government. While he's currently being held in the UK, the US has made several attempts to extradite him. 
Finally, uh, related to growing and encroaching technology that violates individuals' rights, the most recent U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan killed 10 Afghan civilians, uh, including seven children, sources from Business Insider and The Guardian. According to General Mark Milley, chair of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, the action was, quote, a righteous strike, assuring that at least one of those killed in the drone strike was an Islamic State quote, facilitator. He also said, according to the Washington Post, were there others killed? Yes, there were others killed. Who they are, we don't know. Well, I think unilaterally justifying the killing of individuals abroad because they're suspected terrorists implies, in the eyes of those that deploy the drones, that their lives and the lives of civilians around them are expendable. Anyway, Thank you so much, Raphael, for briefing us on this month's news. There's a lot of food for thought here. Thank you, Anita. Um, yes, there is. And uh, we'll see you in the next Media Roundup. You were just listening to Rafi Zakaria, Michael Clare, and Raphael Lewis. Thank you for listening to the Security in Context podcast. Security in Context is an interdisciplinary research and pedagogy initiative that promotes critical research and policy analysis on key questions on peace and conflict, the political economy of security and insecurity, militarism, and geopolitics, particularly as they intersect with the processes of climate change, population movement, and reorganization of global powers. Our goal is to produce and disseminate new thinking and security from a global perspective. If you want to keep up to date with our latest news, publications, and events, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We'll be back with more news updates in the next episode of Security in Context. Until then, stay tuned.